Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This is The Solo Collective, and I'm Rebecca Seal. Prepare to have everything you think about productivity turned upside down. This is not going to include any hacks. Well, it is, but none of the hacks and ways to make you more productive that you expect. This is not about time management or any of that stuff. This is about how completely tangled up we are when it comes to how we think about productivity. Rahaf Harfouche is a strategist, a digital anthropologist and a best-selling author. And her third book, which I so strongly recommend, is called Hustle and Float, Reclaim Your Creativity and Thrive in a World Obsessed with Work. There is a certain irony to the fact that I discovered Rahaf Harfouche on Twitter, given that she writes about productivity and Twitter and social media must be the biggest productivity sinks that there possibly can ever have been. But I'm thrilled that I did because she's so interesting and such a brilliant person to talk to. I came away from this conversation kind of even more committed to a better understanding of what it means to be both productive and creative. I don't want to spoil all of the conversation, but we've got it wrong. We've got it so wrong. Fortunately, she lays out how to understand it all better and how to disentangle ourselves from the mess that we're in. Why do you think productivity and creativity are so incompatible? I'd probably go that far. And how have we got into such a tangle about all of this? I know that's quite a big question to start with, but do you think you could kind of shed some light on that? Yeah, I so the question of of productivity has become really interesting because you have this systems of thinking, right? And a set of tools that were designed originally in armies and governments and then adapted during the industrial revolution to help manage warehouses. And so you have the system that was designed for standardized tasks, set shifts, a very different type of work that we somehow have just brought with us to an age where many of us are knowledge workers, many of us are creative. And I know the word creativity can be a bit off-putting. People think, oh, like I'm not a painter or I'm not an artist. But creativity is really, if you have a job where you have to problem solve, where you have to research, be in meetings, like learn things, understand things, that's you being creative. And so the problem is that we have an entire population of people whose work requires them to be creative that are using a system that was never designed for creative work because industrial era productivity systems depended on the idea of continuous productivity, right? So you go to the assembly line, you start your shift, and then guess what? You just don't stop working for your entire shift. And at the end, your manager comes in and it says, cool, Rebecca, you've built X number of widgets. And so yet you get a check mark for, for having been productive that day. 
Meanwhile, creativity as a neurological construct requires people to have daydreaming time, boredom time, uninterrupted time, unstructured time, undistracted time. And if you're listening to this thinking, I don't have those in my day, well, yeah, that is the problem. The problem is, is that we have decided that the only way to be productive is for us to fill every minute of every single day with visible tasks so that we can prove that we're working. But Ignoring the fact that in order for our brains to do the creative work, you actually need to put a bunch of unstructured time in your day. So the two systems are very incompatible because one of them requires you to be doing stuff all the time. And the other one says, hey, if you want me to give you my best ideas, you have to let me go out and let my daydream and let my mind wander so that I can bring those ideas back. And the reason that people feel really stressed out is that we've been conditioned to believe that if the ideas aren't coming, oh, just push through. Just sit at your computer for another hour. Just hustle a little harder. Just use a different app. Just push through when that is the absolute last thing that we should be doing. So like how often have you walked away from your computer because you've been struggling with a problem and then you're like doing the dishes or walking your dog or doing something random, then the idea pops into your head. It's like I would love to hear if there's ever been a, a time when somebody found the solution by just like pushing themselves to stay awake for an extra four hours or to stare at a screen for an extra period of time. How did we get to a point where we actually equate being productive with stress relief? Like I find that a very odd thing because presumably if we think of our productivity as something which we can worry about, as in if we don't do enough of it, then we're stressed, then we must therefore, on the other side of that coin, see being highly productive as a stress reliever. Like at the end of a day, when you consider yourself to have been productive, you you somehow feel better about yourself. Because I totally identify with that sense. Like Even though I know quite a lot of the research and um, I've read a lot about this, I still find myself kind of enthrall to these ideas. They're really, really pervasive, aren't they? They're just embedded everywhere. And it's not just in the workplace. They are in our movies and they're on magazine covers and they're in interviews and they're on social media posts. So you're actually getting this message that productivity is good and being idle is bad from pretty much every media source that you're consuming in some way or another. And one, we got here because when workers shifted from doing measurable tasks, like say manufacturing, to knowledge work, companies really struggled with figuring out, okay, well, like how do we measure if somebody's doing stuff or not? Like, Rebecca, how many ideas do you produce in an hour? Like, even though that sounds absurd, they didn't really have any other options at the time. And so they just brought all these systems forward. So that's one pillar. The other pillar, why this is such a complicated relationship to unravel, is you have an idea like the American dream, which every country has on some level, the Canadian dream, the Australian dream, whatever, this idea that if you work hard enough, you will be successful. And we all believe it. If I just work hard enough and apply myself, I will take advantage of opportunities and I will achieve my goals. The flip side of that is that we've also internalized what's called the shadow dreams. I call this the shadow dream, which is if I'm not successful, if I'm not where I want to be, it must be because I'm not working hard enough. So we've internalized this idea that if I'm not working hard enough, that's why I'm not successful, not socioeconomics, not luck, not where you were born, not um, who you had the chance to meet, not wage stagnation, wage inequalities, access to education, access to healthcare. No, it's because you aren't working early enough. It's because you're not staying late enough. And so we've essentially made people feel guilty 
for a lot of factors that are outside of their control. So then you have that, you have people internalizing guilt for not doing anything and thinking that their own self-worth is tied to their identity, right? So then if you're not successful, then what does that say about your sense of self-worth and about your sense of validation? And then the last thing that makes us even messier, because this is how complicated and how it's like, imagine like a big knot of all of these things that we're kind of unraveling, is that then you look out in the media and all you see are stories this like rags to riches stories repeated over and over and over again in pop culture, in movies, on Instagram of people that are saying, look how hard I'm working. And when we talk about people's successes in the media, and I did a review of this in Hustle and Float, I looked at the most successful people, then I said, how do we talk about their success? How do we talk about Beyonce's success? Google Beyonce and Google work ethic, and you will find hundreds of articles about how she never stops working, how she is always on top of stuff, how she's the hardest working woman in show business, how the woman has a reputation for a work ethic that is unmatched. So we don't just talk about her creative genius. We talk about her success solely through the lens of how much she works. So then when you wake up in the morning and feel the disappointment that I'm sure many of us feel in not being Beyonce, then you internalize (laughs) all of that stuff and you say, well, it must be because I don't work as hard. And that's what's really damaging is that essentially not only are we becoming obsessed with productivity in order to just like be successful, we've become obsessed with productivity as a way to validate our own self-worth as human beings in society. And that's the message I want to counter because it's so harmful to people's mental health and to their well-being. I can't tell you how profound that bit of the book was for me, learning about that, how we'd been taught to kind of to work hard and and to validate our self-worth. Like it actually, it made me a bit tearful because I realized I almost want to cry now. Like it's had such a huge impact on me and how I've how I've lived my life. And I realized that that I'm, I'm sure you have seen this meme that kind of work hard and be nice to people. I realized that that is like written through me like rock. And it's had some really damaging consequences. For me, that stuff has been so powerful. So thank you for that. <laughs> and, and I feel like it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a message that I want to get out as well. How did you come to the point of understanding all of this stuff? Because I think you also had quite a difficult time that kind of was the driving force behind doing the research, which turned into this book in the first place. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and I'd love to just answer or just clarify one thing that you just said, because I think it's such an important point. Nobody is saying that hard work isn't good. What I'm saying, even productivity, the idea of how can you improve your performance, that's a great thing to figure out. And we should talk about what productivity looks like for the you know the people that run their own businesses that work from home the creatives my my critique my my rage my disappointment comes from the fact that the systems that we're using to measure our performance were never made for us. So we should be using systems that we build that measure our creativity and and protect our energy, not systems that were designed for factory workers. And working hard, of course, it's important. But we have conflated working hard with working just for the sake of working all the time. And that's also the issue. And then the whole idea of having to be nice, I mean, that is a whole other different layer to, to unpack. But it's this notion that 
you know, of course we're going to apply ourselves. Of course we want to be focused. Of course we want to perform. Of course we have ambitious goals and we should be pursuing them. But pursuing them in a model that doesn't prioritize intentional recovery is professional and creative suicide. And I speak from personal experience because as you as you asked me, I suffered an episode of burnout that was severely debilitating for months. My hair started falling out. Like you want to get a hard experience like pre-pandemic, try sitting in a hairdresser's chair and then having him say, pull out clumps of your hair. Like that was just devastating. And that went on for months. And um, it was really, really hard. And I'll tell you, like my rock bottom was recognizing and being afraid. So first, when I was burned out, my brain stopped working. No more ideas, no more writing, no more anything, no more thinking. I just like sat on my couch and I couldn't even watch TV. That's how drained I was. It was like awful. And I was convinced that I had fundamentally broken my creativity forever and that it had just like gone away and it was never going to come back. I had to come to terms with this idea that a lot of my angst was coming from this idea that I had identified who I was and tied that to being a writer so closely that I was completely lost. And I kept circling around this notion that I said in the book, like, who am I if I'm a writer that can't write? Where does that leave me? What if I'm if I'm not a hard worker and you know, I'm an immigrant, so my family was were immigrants. And so, like, you have that whole psychology of really needing to pay your parents back for the sacrifices that they made and all of that stuff. And so, who was I if I couldn't work hard? Who was I if I couldn't write? And I mentioned earlier that, you know, your bio says like Rebecca is a writer. And I had to really make peace with the fact that there was a big possibility that my bio would just say Rahaf is. And Rahaf is would have to be enough. But I never again confuse my work with my identity. It is not who I am. I don't believe my soul's purpose was to like come here and talk about productivity. You know, I believe that we're here on this planet to just be as joyful as possible, to love the people we have for as long as we're lucky to have them. And that's it. And it just removed this pressure that counterintuitively let me do better work because I was no longer tied to ideas of guilt and shame and self-worth and validation that weren't actually helping me produce my best ideas anyway. Thank you for sharing that. That's a, you know, it's a hard thing to share. So thanks very much. And I can't be alone in neglecting those bits of my brain in my working day. I mean, I think this is an incredibly common problem for people, particularly people who work by themselves. Like, well, actually, I'm sure it's problematic in traditional office work as well. But I think if you can set your own routine, your own day, isn't the impulse to just fill it with work, particularly if it's kind of work which will be obviously paid? I particularly found it really hard at the beginning stages of writing the book because I'm also a journalist. And so I would be given work to do that had a deadline that was really close. And then I would have this book that was going to take a year to write. And for the first six months or so, I just prioritized the stuff that I would be paid for right now because sort of, I guess the measurable thing was I need to earn money. So I have to do that work first. But obviously the thing that would have made the book writing easier would have been to kind of lie on a sofa and stare at the ceiling and think about the ideas in the book and and where I wanted to take them. But I found that almost impossible, even though logically I knew that that was what I needed. And how can we kind of transcend that? Is it just about ramming the science into ourselves more and more and just having these conversations and trying to convince ourselves of, of 
changing our behavior. I mean, the hard thing about writing this book was realizing that only people who are ready to hear the message would hear the message, right? I can't convince you. I can quote facts for five hours to you, but if you've intrinsically internalized the idea that your self-worth is linked to how hard that you work, you're going to have so much resistance to that idea and nothing's ever going to happen. So the idea for Hustle and Float was just to say, hey, if you just take a minute and assess your own working relationship with yourself. And if you said, you know what, I'm perfectly happy with the way my work is going, then it's like more power to you, rock on, do your thing, go be a badass. But if like many people, you were like, I'm feeling burnt out, I'm feeling tired, these systems aren't working for me, then the only way to release yourself from these hidden forces is to go into yourself and deconstruct and pull apart that relationship with work, to release the need for validation, to acknowledge the the link between work ethic and identity. So like one, there's a lot of like personal stuff that needs to happen, which is also really counterintuitive because we've also been trained to think of like work where everyone's really professional and there's a distance and it's your LinkedIn self and everyone's like perfectly put together and curated. And the reality is, is that work actually touches on our messiest bits, right? It's our need to be liked, our need to be recognized, our need to feel valuable, our need to contribute. Like it is all of our psychological baggage that has just been repurposed into a to-do list and put out into the world. So that's the first part. The second part is like the technology bit, like that's an addiction. We're becoming addicted to notifications. Our brains are being rewired by notifications. So that's also something to think about that it's not necessarily in your control when you've been conditioned to respond to the micro dose of dopamine you get every time an email comes in. So that's also something to navigate. And then the third part is what you talked about, prioritizing money. Well, yeah, you're your own business. You have to pay your rent. You have to pay your mortgage. So as much, you know, what kind of advice would I give you if I was like, no, don't (laughs) focus on rent or mortgage, you know? (laughs) A lot of people that run their own business feel like they can't miss any opportunity. So they have to be on all the time to respond to everything at a moment's notice because our culture around technology has also normalized this idea that everyone's responsive, everyone's everything's urgent, and everyone expects a, an answer immediately. And none of those things are true. Most people's emails are not urgent. I'm not saying you should take five days to answer a client, but if you were to take an hour, 99% of emails can wait for an hour. They can wait for you to have lunch. They can wait for you to drink a cup of coffee. It's us that are putting the expectations on ourselves to have to answer everything immediately. And I always tell people, if Barack Obama, when he was president of the United States, if he could go every night and have dinner with his family for that hour and a half, then the rest of us have no excuse because like whatever we're doing was probably not as important (laughs) as what the president (laughs) of the United States was doing. So that is my point of anchor when when I'm trying to feel, when I feel a bit guilty if I'm taking a break. There's a lovely bit in his um, in his book where he talks about leaving the Oval Office on a Sunday afternoon and leaving the people to go and have a meeting because he was getting a haircut. And I was like, great, you're so right. Like, if he can have a haircut, I can have a haircut. Of course. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Can we talk a bit about the kind of cultural stereotype of these hardworking, hyperproductive, you know, the Jeff Bezos of this world, the Beyonce we've talked about, but Elon Musk, all those people. And I'd like to preface this by saying I do not believe their stats about the hours that they work for a second. I would love to see a timesheet. I'd love to track them with a camera for for a week or even several weeks. I don't believe that anybody can work 100 hours a week and survive it over the long term, like literally survive. I think it would kill you. Okay, so maybe there's one or two people who can do that. That's not something to aspire to. How did we get to a point where people think that that level of graft is a desirable trait. I mean, I know it's because they're incredibly rich and in many cases, incredibly innovative, and maybe that's attractive, but I do not understand how we have got to a point where we idolize people who have got no life and yes, a lot of money, but no time in which to spend it. What what do you think about all that? I mean, do you think that these stats are true? I know that they're banded around a lot and I know that the, the people in question put them out, but I'm just not sure that that's, I don't think it's feasible. So you have to remember, like, it's really funny when I see people being like, I'm going to be like Elon Musk. It's like, okay, he's a billionaire. Okay. So let's <laughs> just say he is working. Let's just, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and yeah. say he's working a hundred hours. Okay. He has a chef. He has a driver. He has a team of assistants. He probably has childcare and support and all of that stuff. So he is not going to the grocery store. He's not doing laundry. He's not cooking. He's not doing any of the day-to-day maintenance of adulting that all of us like have to do in order to continue to be contributing members of society. So that's the first thing. But what's really interesting, and let's say stick with the Elon Musk example, because, you know, when he was sleeping on the floor of his factory, that was held up as like an aspirational thing. And for anybody that thinks that that's aspirational, in 2018, he did an interview with the New York Times. I would highly recommend that people watch that because in that interview, he cries. He literally breaks down and cries and talks about how this work schedule has destroyed his relationships, destroyed his ability to like, he like was not having a good time, impacted his health, impacted his relationship with his family, impacted his relationship with his kids. And like that, we gloss over that. We're like, look at him. He's sleeping on his factory floor. Meanwhile, he's there saying this was the worst thing that I've ever done. And so it goes back to what we talked about earlier. We look at people that are incredibly successful and we say the the reason that they're incredibly successful is because they've worked so hard. But if you look at, for example, the, the Department of U.S. Labor Statistics, you see that there are people in the U.S., people around the world that are working as much as Elon Musk. They have three jobs right? They're gig economy workers. They're doing Deliveroo or Uber Eats at night. They're doing a part-time job here, a part-time job there. So they're actually working just as hard and they're still not able to make ends meet. And this is what I always say, like we have to stop telling people that the answer is that they're just 
not working hard enough versus, I don't know, like a livable minimum wage, accessible education, maybe have a non-predatory student loans, like, you know, maybe not bankrupt people if they commit the crime of accidentally getting sick or having a disease, like maybe that shouldn't financially bankrupt people. Like maybe there are other things at play other than how hard people are working that's going to be measured of their success. Hard work is a variable. Of course, if you work hard, you're going to make advancements, but it's hard work plus serendipity, plus your advantages, plus where you were born, plus gender, plus your family, plus, plus, like there's so many other variables. And so we just need to expand the equation instead of just pointing at people and saying, look at how hard they work. Like Elon Musk came also from a wealthy family. Beyonce had the luck of having parents who had the privilege of being able to devote themselves full time to helping her build her career. Does that mean that she didn't work insanely hard? No. It just, of course it meant she worked insanely hard. It just meant that there were all these other things that also had to go right for her to hit that level. Of success. We need to let this toxic, corrosive guilt go and shaming people that their success is because of, oh, they just didn't get up earlier. So I think you've used the phrase humane productivity before. Mm -hmm. How, Mm -hmm. what is that and how can we apply it to, to sort of solo working lives, do you think? Sure. So instead of thinking about your productivity and the numbers of hours you can do something, think about your productivity in terms of the ebbs and flows of your cycle of creativity, right? And we've all experienced this. You start out with a lot of energy. You start writing that book or you start doing client stuff or researching. And then after a point in time, naturally, because we're not machines, our energy gets depleted and we need to take a break. So I call this the performance cycle and every person has a different cycle. So if you want a really good trick, try in the next, over the next couple of days, like take the timer on your phone. And when you're working, just put that timer on and measure how long does it take you to get into peak performance? How long can you hold peak performance? You know, how long does it take you to come out of it? And then how long do you need to recover? So I have friends whose performance cycles are like 30 minutes. It takes them five minutes to get into it. They can do something for 20 minutes and then they need five minutes to recover. So once you have that information, then you're like, okay, well, it doesn't make sense for me to expect myself to sustain peak performance for eight hours of the day. Like that's lunacy. It just does not make sense. So instead you say, okay, my performance cycle is 30 minutes or my performance cycle is two hours. I'm going to build my day around these two-hour blocks. This means I'm not going to have calls that interrupt me in the middle of this because every time I get distracted, I lose that 30 minutes that it takes me to get back into it, right? So that's where efficiency and productivity make sense when the systems help you to do the best work. So the way to think about it is you have to, in your day, plan for using that, so depleting your energy and spending your energy points, and then you need to have time to recharge that back up. And if you do this, then the amazing thing is, is at the end of the day, you're not exhausted. And at the end of the week, you're not so emptied out that it takes you two vacation days of lying on your couch doing nothing just to feel human again. If you are dragging yourself at the end of the week because you are so depleted, that is a huge red flag that you need to be rethinking how you manage your energy during the day. And while I can't give you a perfect solution because everyone's energy cycle is a bit different, everyone's days are a bit different, everyone's habits are a bit different, but like ask yourself, when are you creative? Are you an early bird? Are you a night owl? You know, what is your performance cycle? How can you create a system of your day 
right? Where you can give yourself the maximum amount of uninterrupted time in chunks so that you can like go into high flow work and then come out of it. And then you can just say, okay, what are my responsibilities? How do I fit those in? And then what are the things that I need to do to schedule joy in? So I guess what I would say is nine to five is arbitrary. Nine to five doesn't mean anything. We literally invented it again during the industrial revolution. The eight hour workday is just arbitrary and doesn't mean anything. So why not look at your own day, especially if you're working from home and you have some flexibility, and play around with designs? Maybe you'll have days when you don't take any meetings. Maybe you only take meetings Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Maybe you have mornings that you don't take meetings. Maybe you like figure out a way to, like, how can you schedule your day so that you're creating a system that helps you constantly replenish your energy because your energy is a renewable resource. And so those are the types of questions solopreneurs and solo workers should be asking themselves because they have the luxury and the advantage of being able to customize their day in order to say, how can I create the best system to maximize my time so that I am producing the best possible work? That's so useful and so reassuring as well, because I've tried the Pomodoro technique quite a lot. And I always find that because the time periods are, are sort of arbitrary, you know, I've always gone for a kind of 45 minute it's never worked for me. I've always taken ages to get into it. And then the timer goes off and I'm like, oh, I haven't actually done anything. But maybe I'm like you and I just need to grant myself the permission to have a kind of longer ease in and maybe set the timer to start a little bit late. I'm going to experiment with that. So essentially the the kind of the productivity hack, as it were, is is simply about getting to know oneself and figuring out exactly what fits for you and shrugging off I guess a lot of the stuff which has come before us in terms of our understanding of what what a work day looks like yeah I mean it's I'm giving you permission to tear apart other people's systems like if you like the miracle morning system but you're a night owl just do it at night if you like morning pages but you're a night owl just do your morning pages at night like I'm giving you permission to look at what's happening break it apart, take the part that works for you and get rid of anything that doesn't work for you. You don't have to fit yourself into a system, like make the system fit you. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a lesson for all of us. Absolutely. So there will be people who work by themselves, but for a big organization. And I guess for those people, it might be a little bit more difficult to restructure their working days. Is there anything that can be helpful to them perhaps in conversation with their managers? Or is this issue more about kind of how we make structural changes? Do organizations need to be hearing this stuff as much as solo workers? And and do we do we need to kind of take it off our own shoulders a little bit? Is this stuff that, that organizations need to need to take responsibility for changing? Yeah. And I think we're starting to see organizations start to take these practices more seriously. The corporate wellness space, for example, has now become like a multi-billion dollar industry because surprise, when you have burned out workers, it actually impacts your bottom line. It costs you a lot of sick leave mistakes, loss of quality, like all of these things that they're starting to realize. If you think about it, if the last like 10 years of work was all about optimization? How can we make people as efficient as possible? It's like, congratulations, we are optimized. Now (laughs) what? And so now they're realizing that like burnout is going to cost them. This is why the World Health Organization in 2019 declared burnout to be like a global problem. So they're starting now, unfortunately, not necessarily out of the goodwill of their hearts, but out of the pursuit of the bottom line that making sure that workers have conditions that reflect what they need to perform is good for business. So that's the first part. The second part I would say is that while not everybody 
has control over every aspect of their day. I do work a lot with big organizations and most managers are pretty open to having a conversation around how they could make the team working environment a bit more sustainable and a bit more humane. And you don't have to frame it. If you are going to talk to your manager, you don't have to frame it like, I think we should do this. I need this. You can say like, what if we tried an experiment for 30 days? What if we just tried this for 30 days and just, you know, what if we clustered our meetings on Wednesdays or what if we did daily check-ins so that we could, you know, get rid of some of, or change some of these meetings and just structure it as a conversation. Most people are pretty open to trying, especially since the pandemic has been so, like such an intense traumatic experience for so many of us. I feel like companies are, are listening. However, if you are in the situation where your manager just is not listening and you are not in a place, you don't feel comfortable having those conversations and that's totally okay then you have to take it upon yourself to carve out those tiny little moments during your day. So you can go for 10 minutes and just put your phone on the table for 10 minutes and just go lie down on your couch. Like, I promise you, it'll be fine. You can do that. I kind of want to be clear too that I'm not saying that it's the individual's responsibility to have to take all of this on. I'm just trying to help us survive because so much of this is out of our control. But the first step in surviving is recognizing that this isn't our fault. And a lot of what's happening isn't our fault. And it's not because we're not working hard enough. And it's not because we're not doing things fast enough that there's a system that we've been caught up in, right? Take your vacations, take your off days. Like you're doing a job. You are not selling your soul. We need to reclaim those boundaries because we also get told things like, oh, you know, if you love your work, you should want to do it all the time. It's like, no. So, you know, you, we have to start with where we can and then open up spaces. If you lead people, if you are a manager listening to this and you lead people, just ask them, how could we redesign our meetings, our weeks, our energy to help you? How can we, you know, and if you lead teams, this should be conversations that you have over the organizations because I guarantee you that the workers are struggling with this in your firm. And if you don't solve these problems, as big companies are seeing, creative talent leaves. And the biggest reason that many of these companies are trying to do this is because they're realizing that they're having a harder time recruiting and retaining high-performing talent because of the risk of burnout. Yeah, I think that's such a huge problem. And also the cost in the UK, at least, the cost of sick leave, of getting people to cover jobs that people can't do because they're on temporary sick leave because they're burned out or or because they've got back problems from sitting at their dining table for the last year, you know, all of that stuff. I think those are drivers. I wish that it was because everybody loved their staff and wanted to, and wanted to treat them well. But I do think that, that, that you're right. That's a huge driver. Thank you so, so much for this conversation. There's so much in it, so much that people can take from it. And I'm really grateful. And I so strongly recommend your book, Hustle and Float. So thank you so much. I just, this was fascinating. So useful, so helpful. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me. As you may have been able to tell, Rahaf was kind of preaching to the converted because this is very much how I think about productivity. But I really enjoyed having her intellectual conciseness explain more clearly perhaps than I ever could exactly why we've got things wrong and what we need to change. I think it's an exciting moment, actually, because I think as we begin to understand this stuff better, we will be able to make changes both within organisations and 
as solo workers who work for themselves. So I feel very positive, but I think we do need more and more to get to grips with this stuff. If you've liked what you've heard on The Solo Collective, then I would love it if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And do share us with anybody who you know who you think might benefit from joining us in The Solo Collective. You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original, The Solo Collective, with me, Rebecca Seal. Produced by Laura Hyde, with production support from Jill Achenaku. Original music by Dee Plume and mixed by Alex Portfelix. Chalk and Blade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.